Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Today uh, on the podcast, we have asked the, the legendary Mr. Gordon Graham to join us and discuss a few issues with us. And with me, I have uh, Travis Norton and uh, my sidekick, uh, Chris Jenny. Mr. Graham, thank you for being on our show. If you could, for anybody who does not have access to technology of any kind or who has been uh, under a rock for the last decade, could you explain a little bit about your history and how you ended up being the voice of risk management for not just law enforcement, but first responders? Because you do a lot, a lot with fire uh, as well now. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to this. And to all the people out there in the listening audience, thank you for listening to this. My goal over the next two hours or so, whatever this runs, is to give you some proven strategies and tactics that you can take back to your respective agency with the ultimate goal of better protecting yourself, your team, your organization, your community, our profession. And of course, the big one for me on a national level, particularly here in the States, is better protecting our great nation. Thank you for the, the kind words on the introduction. I got to be honest with you, in my little world, I'm nobody. I have just been very, very, very fortunate in life. The California Highway Patrol was kind enough to hire me in 1973. And um, they sent all of the kids to the academy. On day one of the academy, Sergeant Leo Schusman stood up there and said, 150 men here today. Take a look to the man to your left. Take a look to the man to your right. One of you will not be here in 16 weeks. And 16 weeks later, he was almost perfect. About 100 of us graduated in 1973. They sent all the new kids to downtown Los Angeles. For those of you not familiar, we have five offices in the Los Angeles area, East Los Angeles, West Los Angeles, South Los Angeles, Glendale, and the backbone of the California Highway Patrol, Central Los Angeles, the mighty 590. And uh, they told us when we got there, two of you won't get off probation. And that ended up being true, you know, and somehow I made it through probation and I got off probation and I wrecked a patrol car and the CHP has got a sense of humor. If you wreck a car, they make you a motorcycle cop. So I went to motor school, which had a 70 percent failure rate uh, back then for first time attendees. Somehow I got through motorcycle school. And uh, God, I was the luckiest guy in the world. I'm a highway patrol motorcycle cop. I was a grave disappointment to my parents. Go back to school, go back to school. So I did. In 74, I went over to Cal State Long Beach and picked up a teacher credential. I came on with a BS in, uh, uh, from San Francisco State College, but I went over to Cal State Long Beach when I had the opportunity in 74, picked up a teacher credential, figured I could always teach. In 75, I went over to USC to get into law school. And I did get in, but I didn't end up going there. Instead, I got lured into a program called the Institute of Safety and Systems Management, the ISSM. And let me bore you with this. Where'd this ISSM come from? Our United States military, and I know I got some veterans listening to this, possibly some current reservists, some active duty people, some proud moms and dads, maybe some gold star families. Our military has a terrible, terrible, terrible safety record. For those of you who have read the great book, Unbroken, uh, the story of Louis Zamperini, later a movie by Angelina Jolie. But like every book to movie, the book's a thousand times better. One piece of data jumped out of that book and floored me. 
the United States Army Air Corps training pilots World War II stateside, 42 to 45, was suffering on average 19 fatalities per day in training exercises. This was not isolated. We lost a lot of soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen from accidents and illness. And at the end of World War II, the military said, we got a problem. So in 1950, they contracted with University of Southern California to build this Institute of Safety and Systems Management, a program to educate military leaders on the principles of risk. And 25 years later, 1975, I'm trying to get into USC Law School and they talked me out of it. You don't want to go to law school here, son. You want to go to this ISSM. The open, they opened the program for non-military personnel, and I was in one of the first classes of non-military personnel at the ISSM. And then I spent four years in law school after three years of graduate school. Graduated law school in 1982, passed the bar in 1982, opened my law practice in 1982, promoted sergeant in 1982. 82 was a good year. And for 40 years now, 40 years now as a lawyer, I've been handling tragedies. Thousands of clients over 40 years. My son died in this motorcycle collision. My house was destroyed by this pipeline explosion. I'm being indicted for excessive force. I'm being fired for harassment. I'm being sued for a collision. My husband died in this plane crash. Thousands of clients over the last almost five decades and the victims of tragedy. But while as a lawyer, I handle tragedy, as a risk manager, the background I got at the ISSM, I study tragedy, I look for cause, what caused it. And here's an important take back to work note for everybody. In any occupation, in any profession, in any tragedy. Stop the story right there. I just don't talk to cops. I started off talking to cops back in 1980, but it's expanded greatly. I've spent a lot of time with all public safety people, the fire people, the PSAP people, uh, the EMS people, but I've expanded into just about every high-risk industry. I've done a lot of work in the timber industry, the construction industry, the nuclear industry, the aviation industry, the water wastewater management industry, and scores of other ones. It doesn't make any difference in any occupation, in any profession, in any tragedy. If you can identify what really caused the tragedy, then you can build control measures. Policies, procedures, protocols, rules, directives, SOs, GOs, initiatives, call them what you want. But if these control measures are properly designed, kept up to date, and fully implemented, you can prevent future similar tragedies. That's my whole life, folks. As a lawyer, I handle tragedies. As a risk manager, I study tragedies, identify cause, build viable control measures, prevent future similar tragedies from occurring. But in order to build these appropriate control measures, to prevent future similar tragedies from occurring, you must first be able to identify the cause of a given tragedy. And if you've been to any of my lectures over the last 40 plus years, or if you've been to any of my, my live programs or watch any of my stuff online, you know my pet peeve in life. We don't teach risk management in grade school in this country. We don't teach risk management in high school in this country. And hear this one loud and clear. We hire women and men and put them into the complex, high-risk job of law enforcement. And I don't care if you're local, county, state, federal, tribal, it doesn't make any difference to me. We put people in a high-risk job, show me your initial training curriculum at your academy. Is there a class on risk management in that training curriculum? Nope. How dare you? How dare you? And I know that many of the listeners here today are moving up, and you're going to be taking over your agency someday. 
Do something about this. How dare you put people in a high-risk job with no training on the discipline of risk management? Well, Gordon, we don't have a formal class, but we talk about it all the time. No, we don't. We don't get it. At the federal level, we're being stupid. At the state level, we're being stupid. At the local level, we're being stupid. Individually, we're being stupid. We don't understand the discipline. At the federal level, in my long programs, I ask people this question. What's the five greatest risks the United States of America faces today? I'll ask all of you out the viewing and listening audience right now. What are the five greatest risks the United States of America faces today? How many of you have birth rate on your brain? You want to worry about something? You worried about Putin? You worried about Kim Jong-un? You worried about Xi Jinping? You worried about Iran? You worried about nuclear destruction? You worried about stuff? You need to worry about the birth rate. When the birth rate of a given country gets below 2.1, also known as the replacement rate, that's a big deal. When it gets below 2.0, it's a real big deal. When it gets below 1.8, it's a real, real, real big deal. When it gets below 1.4, the country is dead. Mathematically, you cannot have enough sex to reproduce the country when the birth rate gets below 1.4. Motorcycle cops could not have enough sex to reproduce the country when the birth rate gets below 1.4. Every country in Europe that you can pronounce the name of, the birth rate is where? Below 1.4. You know, Holland, England, Italy, Ireland, all these places, well below 1.4. How are we doing? Uh, slightly better than 1.6. And that's only if you count the people not legally here having babies. Without them, this nation would be in one heck of a mess. So riddle me this, is the USA going to be heavily dependent on immigration over the next 100 years? Absolutely. So how are we handling immigration? We suck at immigration. And don't blame Biden, don't blame Trump, don't blame Obama, don't blame Clinton, don't blame Bush. Early 80s, I had an Indian fellow come in my law office. I filed my paperwork to become a US citizen at the wrong location. They're giving me the runaround. I gotta get it transferred from LA to Santa Ana, 50 miles. They're giving me the runaround. I got it done for them. Did it take an hour, a day, a week, or three years? Three years to get paperwork transferred, how stupid is this? How many good immigrants are we screwing up because of our out-of-date, out-of-date uh, recruitment, or excuse me, immigration laws? It's just stupid. At the state level, as I go around the country, oh yeah, we're going to be legalizing marijuana. I wonder if anybody in Florida called California before they legalized dope. This is California. Hey, this is Tallahassee. So how's that legalized dope working out for you out there? Traffic collisions headed which way? Through the roof. Overall drug abuse, through the roof. Juvenile drug abuse, through the roof. Juvenile suicides, through the roof. Oh, let's just legalize dope. Stupid. At the local level, what's going on two years ago? Defund the police. Do away with police. Do away with police. We hate the police. I'm watching all these so-called leaders screaming, do away with the police, defund the police. And I'm thinking to myself, and I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree. I went to night school, you know? I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what's going to happen if you defund the police. And crime went through the roof and people are shocked. Oh, my God. Carjackings went up 517%. Who would have ever thunk? This is just stupid. Individually, we're being stupid. Some of the stuff that we think is oh so risky is, in fact, relatively benign. And some of the stuff that's not even on your radar yet is the stuff that's going to come back to haunt you. You know, I'm going to give you uh, an opportunity if you want my recommended rating list, and obviously I'm biased, it's all books on risk management, you can visit my website, lexapol.com 
forward slash presentations, or send me an email, ggraham at lexapol.com and ask for my reading list. Uh, two great books on my reading list, The Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Taleb and The Gray Rhino by Michelle Wucker. Take them one at a time. Taleb's great book. 1597, this Englishman goes down to Australia and he sees this big black bird that looks like a swan, but in his world, where he comes from, swans are white. So he asked the Aussie guy, what kind of bird is that? It's a black swan, mate, to the Englishman. That was an unknown unknown, something he had never even considered. Fast forward to 21 years ago, one month after September 11th, SEC defunct Rumsfeld was asked this question by the news media. It's in his obituary. He passed away last year. It's in his obit. Secretary Rumsfeld, what's your greatest fear in this war on terror? Remember his answer? My greatest fear are the black swans, the things we haven't even thought about yet. On the other hand, Michelle Walker has got this great book called The Gray Rhino. These massive 4,000 pound beasts that are coming right at us. We can see them coming and we refuse to get out of the way. For all of you out there in the listening audience, if you don't get anything else out of our time together, leave with this. There are very few, if any, black swans in the world of American law enforcement. Most of our tragedies are gray rhinos. They're coming right at us. We can see them coming and we don't get out of the way. Which brings me to where I'm kicking off my new lectures this year. Walk up to any chief of police and ask this question. You know, and if you're a chief, I apologize if I offend you, but you've had the opportunity over the last nine years since Ferguson. Walk up to any chief of police and ask this question. So what were the lessons learned out of Ferguson, Missouri? Since Ferguson, I have addressed 40 different states chiefs of police. Every year, with the exception of the COVID years, I've addressed IACP. Every year, with the exception of the two COVID years, I've addressed the National Sheriff's Association. And every year, I have asked this question in my live programs. How many of you have read the Ferguson reports? You know, in a group of 200 chiefs, on average, two or three hands will go up, and almost exclusively, black hands. So the only chiefs of police who read the Ferguson report our African-American chiefs of police, there are lessons learned in Ferguson and we're not learning them. We're not learning them. Walk up to any chief of police. So what were the lessons learned out of Trayvon Martin? Get a blank stare. Walk up to any pilot and mention the name Sullenberger and that pilot will tell you exactly precisely how to land the plane on the Hudson River. The learning management system in the aviation community is much more robust than what we have in public safety as a whole and law enforcement in particular. We have got to revisit this folks because we are making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. Aviation, they learn from mistakes. Law enforcement, we are not learning from our mistakes. And that is really, really troublesome because everything in the news right now, all the major cases you're reading, these are not sneaking up on us before. They've happened before, maybe not to us, but they've happened in our profession and we are not learning from them. Now I've been rambling on now for, oh uh, my gosh, almost a half an hour. Anything to fill in any blanks? Anything I missed? I was just gonna tell you to keep your streak alive. Uh, we asked a question today during team leader, if anybody had read the after action reports from Ferguson, cause there's a couple of them out there. Uh, nobody's read them. And that's been consistent for the last 18 months or so. Nobody's read them. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, go ahead. I go. I I deal with the same thing when I teach uh, team leader uh, throughout the country, and 
I will, I will ask you later, have you read the after action report from Pulse nightclub? Have you read the after action report from pick one of the active shooters? And everyone says, no, where do you get those? And I just don't understand why we as a, as a profession fail to do that. And I hear some, well, it's the liability piece. I just can't put my finger on it and, and nothing's changing. Yep. Yep. I, I have what, the what, answer. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, that's what I was going to ask is what, what, what is your take on why we, why we refuse to do that? Well, there, there's a number of reasons why I think the big one is, you know, and this is going to offend somebody, but that's the nice thing about being old. I really don't care anymore. If you come up with this and you work your butt off to learn these things, you get paid X. If you don't do Jack, you get paid X. And in too many organizations, mediocrity replace accountability. Now you see this group that I'm addressing here today, I call these people the five percenters, the five percenters, 40 years standing in front of audiences. I've learned something about cops. In a group of hundred cops, 10 of them don't wanna be there. 10 of them don't wanna be there or don't belong there. They have no business in this profession. 80, 85 are good people who would do what they're told. And then there's 5%, my opinion, just my opinion, 5% who want to change the world. My guess is that most of the people who are taking the time to listen to this podcast are part of that 5% group, the people who want to change the world. So over the last four decades, I've been thinking about this. What can we do to make the knowledge of all, what everybody knows, make it the knowledge of one? And I came up with a seven-step approach. Number one, we need better final reports. We need better investigative reports. I could bore you with this. One of the websites I visit every day is odmp.org, officerdownmemorialpage.org. They got a great little app. I suggest everybody get the app. I know the people who run odmp.org. I have great respect for them. They are not investigating. They are reporting line of duty deaths in law enforcement. Cause of death, officer ran off road cause of death, officer was shot by a violent suspect, cause of death, uh, officer was struck by uh, passing traffic. You know, that's the proximate cause. That's the event that instantly preceded the tragedy. There are thousands and thousands of thousands of proximate causes. You know, we are not learning from these deaths. We're not learning from them. I got involved with two dads 10 years ago whose sons were killed by cops. And long, long story short, you know, I, I listened to what they had to say. I used the Public Records Act and I got both of the final reports. And I will call them reports because they were not investigations. They were reports. And I, I gotta be very honest with you. They were very poorly done. We need better reports. These two dads, oddly enough, were both military veterans, United States Air Force. And what they were talking about 10 years ago, and I've been talking about since then, is why don't we have an NTSB approach to the investigation of line of duty deaths in law enforcement and use of deadly force in law enforcement? NTSB investigations. For those of you really into this, uh, the Kobe Bryant investigation is now out. It's almost 100 pages long. So what's the proximate cause? How did Kobe Bryant die? Well, the pilot flew into a hill. Well, what does that tell me? That doesn't tell me anything. NTSB, they go back in time. They look at training, they look at maintenance, they look at standards, they look at fatigue. They look at a lot of things we don't look at. We need better final reports and non-politicized. It needs to be a neutral body like the NTSB that will come in and do an honest report on line of duty deaths and use of deadly force. 
Uh, item number two, the lessons learned on these final reports cannot be buried in 500 pages of documentation. The lessons learned to be on page one with reference to the page of the 500 pages to get to it. We need to have that. These are the lessons learned out of this incident and summarize those lessons learned and give them the pages where they can look it up if they want more information. Step one, we need better final reports. Step two, we need lessons learned on page one. Step three, we need to learn from tragedies and other high-risk organizations. We need to learn from aviation tragedies. We need to learn from military tragedies. We need to learn from nuclear power plant tragedies. The errors in these are very similar to our errors. Just because it hasn't happened in our profession yet doesn't mean it can't happen. We need to study tragedies in other organizations. Number four, my thesis in graduate school was on the mathematical relationship between close calls, mishaps, and tragedies. If you're really into this, H.W. Heinrich, H-E-I-N-R-I-C-H, an adjuster with Travelers Insurance Company back in the 20s. He was analyzing workplace, uh, workplace accidents, and he got very controversial on his theory of BBS, behavior-based safety, that 88% of all workplace accidents were solely indirectly the cause by the employee. You know, and his research was proper, but the data he was analyzing was improper. And he got a lot of hate from that. Too bad, because simultaneously he was working on his theory of probability on the mathematical relationship between close calls, mishaps, and tragedies. Right now in law enforcement, we learn occasionally from the tragedies. The better idea would be to learn from the mishaps, the sprain, the tear, the rip, the bruise, the fall, the cut, the impact. Think about this. A cop gets shot at and he dies. We learn from that, allegedly. If the guy misses, what kind of a report do we do on that? We don't do anything on that. The guy missed the cop. We just got lucky. You cannot rely on luck. The best, the, the good idea is learning from the deaths. The better idea is learning from the mishaps. The best idea is learning from close calls and to have an open forum where cops can talk about their close calls without fear of embarrassment, without fear of discipline. Now, leonearmiss.org, run by the Police Foundation, that's a start. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect, but we need to be learning from close calls. Item number one, better investigations. Item number two, lessons learned on page one. Item number three, learning from tragedies and other high-risk industries. Item number four, learning from close calls in our profession. Item number five, you five percenters who really care about law enforcement, someday you will retire. I know a lot of you, you're retiring. So you're that person who really cares, who really wants to make a difference, you retire. When's the next time you get called on by your department? When's the next time your department has communication with you after you retire? Funeral? That's too late. All that institutional knowledge is sitting out there. We have got to download these people before they leave our business. If I was running a police agency, a sheriff's agency, any law enforcement agency, hey, Mary, hey, John. Yes, uh, Chief Graham. That's got a ring to it, doesn't it, Chief Graham? But anyway, I digress. Yes, Chief. Hey, you're leaving us next year. Yeah. Mary, what I'd like you to do in your last year is think about the three different jobs you've had while you worked for us. You know, you were working patrol for a while. You went into detectives for 17 years. Then you were a supervisor of a detective unit. What I'd like you to do, Mary, before you leave, is write down the three most important things you did in each of those jobs. How did you do it? And I know the way you think, Mary. How would you do it better next time if it ever happened? 
and take those sound bites from these people, put it into some Boolean search engine where we can type in and hear from this person long after they're gone. Type in suicide, type in traffic collision, type in uh, bomb threat. How did you handle How would you handle it better next time? That's item number five, downloading the five percenters as they go out the door. Item number six, let's bring back the best of the best. I locked down. I ended up in central Los Angeles. And when I became a motorcycle cop, my sergeant was Jack Becker. And I think Jack is still alive. The greatest sergeant in the history of the California Highway Patrol. The guy was a genius. Never wanted to promote. He'd been a sergeant for like 15 or 20 years. He just knew everything. Huh. Why don't we bring him back to help train, mentor, and develop the newest generation of supervisors? Bring him back. Well, Gordon, he's been retired now for 20 some odd years. Yep. Equipment's changed. Yep. Technology's changed. Yep. Uh, the laws have changed. Yep. What's your point? The basic principles of supervision are forever in time. And I will digress. He was my sergeant for 10 years. He retired. And essentially, I took his spot. Uh, I was a sergeant for 10 years. I'm retired now. I've been retired since 2016, excuse me, 20, 2006. 15 years now, I'm in the state's money now, finally. You know, the, people come up at the table at dinner. Mrs. Graham and I will go out to dinner. Excuse me, Gordon? Hey, Gordon Graham here. Sir, you probably don't remember, I worked for you in 1983. You were my first sergeant when I was brand new out of the academy. Do you remember me? Nope, I don't remember you. I had uh, 30 new kids coming in every three months. Uh, 120 new kids a year, 1,200 over 10 years. I don't remember you. I didn't think you would, sir, but I got to tell you, I'm telling my wife at dinner, you're the greatest sergeant in the history of the Highway Patrol. I did the best I could. We got a lot of great women and men out there who are sergeants. No, sir. You were the only sergeant who used to regularly walk us out to our motorcycle and thank us for a good day's work at the end of shift. Seriously, son? Sir, I worked in three different CHP offices. You were the only sergeant who ever did it, and you did it regularly. Thank us for a good day's work. I've been on the lecture circuit for over 40 years now. The number one complaint I get from cops around the world is the only time I hear from my sergeant is when something's wrong. If I start lying to you, call me up and tell me I'm lying. Do your people do a heck of a lot more right than they ever do wrong? Catch your people doing something right and take the time to document it. Praise in public, ratify good behavior, encourage future good behavior. And we're not even doing that. I worked very closely with Dr. David Black at Cortico and we talked to cops around the country. What do you think the most stressful thing is they say they face in the job? Is it the eight hours on the street? Nope, it's the first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes dealing with supervisors and managers who never say thank you, who are always looking to criticize and never thank you for doing something good. Catch your people doing something right and take the time to document it. You know, we need to bring back the best of the best and help train, mentor, and develop the newest generation of supervisors. And finally, step seven, Number one, better investigations. Number two, learning from these investigations. Number three, learning from tragedies and similar other high-risk industries. Number four, learning from close calls. Number five, downloading the good people before they leave. Number six, bringing back the best of the best. And number seven, developing a delivery system where people can access information specific to their type of department, specific to their geographical region, specific to their job description, so that we can really tailor the training to things that people really need to do their job better.
We have got to make the knowledge of all the knowledge of one because we keep on making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And I would like to say that I hold tactical units around this country at a higher standard. And I do believe you guys take it more seriously, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. You keep on making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Basic rule of risk management, the errors you're going to make can be predicted from the errors already made, and we're not learning from these past errors. Well, let me let me ask you a question, Gordon. I think one of the things that I ran into for the uh, one of the projects that I did for Cato was I, I reviewed after action reports from tactical teams throughout California, and I have to be honest, they were horrible. Um, the content was either lacking, or yeah, I mean that's just the best way to describe it. Is the content was lacking? There was really nothing there to glean those lessons learned? And I and I want to ask you a question because. One of the things that I've talked about, and I just, uh, you know, doing an after action review for uh, an out of state agency. And one of the things they didn't want to do the after action report because, well, our lawyer says we're going to be giving the plaintiff's attorneys the stick to beat us with. So let's not let's not do this. What do you say to teams out there, tactical teams who might run into this with their administrators where they don't want these lessons learned? written down anywhere. What's the argument there? Well, I would defer to, you know, the the active lawyers who defend cops regularly, Jane Ramirez, Bruce Prayett, I mean, uh, Steve Manning, these are the geniuses in the industry, and listen to what they have to say. But here's my nickel's worth. Facts are facts. Sooner or later, the facts are going to come out. Why are we trying to hide facts? If we screw things up, we need to say, we did this incorrectly. You know, we need to learn from it. I don't believe in hiding any of this stuff. And I understand the fear. Well, that, that document could be used against us. Okay, then maybe we need to improve the quality of our work. You know, because yes, those documents are subject to discovery. But sooner or later, if the plaintiff lawyer and the plaintiff lawyers are sharper and sharper and sharper over, over years, they're going to discover the facts. What are we going to do? Try to hide these things? I say, no, we got to learn from these things. No, and that's one of the things I told them. I said, look, they're going to bring experts in that are going to examine this. They're going to find these things out anyway. Why do we just not document our lessons learned, plug them back into future training, and show that we have a process by which we can better ourselves? Yep. Well, you know, let me digress. And everything, you know, what just popped into my head is the audit function. And if we're going to Rick over, Admiral Hyman Rick over, he had rule number six. Uh, you got to have a robust audit process in place to make sure what you say you're doing is in fact being done. So, oh yes, we have an excellent audit process here on the FBI. Uh, we have an excellent audit process here in Los Angeles Police Department. You know, our, our audit process in the CHP is probably the best in the country. Well, if you're doing your own audits, you've got a built-in bias. You have got a built-in bias. Even if you're trying to be honest, you have that built-in bias that everything's good in this organization. When we do our own investigations on use of deadly force or an officer who gets hurt or a mistake like that, that's a built-in bias. Whatever agency invited you out, Travis, to inspect their operations or to study a particular incident, that's brilliant. Bringing in an outsider to take a look at things, a neutral voice, you know, that's the value of, how many times have you heard this? Well, cops investigate themselves. How do you think they're going to find out? Even if you do a totally honest evaluation, the perception is we're covering something up because we're part of this profession. That's part of this whole uh, step number one of my seven steps to success on this 
is we need better investigations. And I would prefer if they were done by either a neutral agency or an outside organization or bringing back subject matter experts like yourself. Yeah, and turn into a, another another topic and tactical teams and risk and how I find it very difficult because I'm, I'm doing some work right now on, on, on an issue that, that I've seen across the country with tactical teams and I won't mention the specifics. You try to, I, I'm trying to glean lessons learned from, from a team and nobody wants to talk. You know, no, well, we're not going to say anything or, you know, they just, they don't want, it's this whole, everybody's living in their own silo and they have a very hard time getting out of their silo and going talking to other teams about these things because why? Well, number one, in my opinion, a lot of it's ego. We don't want to look bad in front of other tactical teams, right? You know, my agency doesn't, tactical team doesn't want to look bad as opposed to some other agency's tactical team because, you know, we're all the best. And, and one of the things I tell guys, look, guys, when I start teaching a class, we're all screwed up. We're all screwed up. We have to drop this ego thing. And when we do something wrong, I should be able to walk into the room and say, okay, here's what I did wrong. Here is how we can fix it. Here's the proximate cause. Here's the root cause. And here's a solution to mitigate it from happening again and pass that knowledge out. And again, what we run into is the egos. We run into lawyers saying we can't share these things. And I just would really encourage all of us out there in the because the tactical community is very small, is to we have to stop living in these silos. We have to start talking to one another when we screw something up. And that, and even the near misses, like you talk about, um, it's very difficult to get your tactical teams to talk about their near misses. Yep. Because everybody wants to be the best, everybody wants to shine. And I get that, but we're not helping each other out when we do that. And it's a rarity that you will see that. You know, again, my, my miscellaneous ramblings on this, Travis, is in most law enforcement agencies, people respect the tactical officers. Seriously. You got to work very hard to get on the team. The teams have better training, more training more often, better equipment. They're the, you know, the gold star in that law enforcement agency tackled units. So listen to this for logic. If we can get what I view as the creme de la creme of law enforcement, the tactical teams to open their minds and report the things that truly happened. Maybe that can serve as a vanguard to encourage everybody in law enforcement to open up the ends, talk about what really happened on these things. Because hiding information from each other, whether it's for bravado or confidentiality or fear of a lawsuit, or I don't want to be embarrassed or any of that stuff, that is silliness. That is silliness. You know, uh, you talk to fighter pilots, you know, and you want to talk about people who are really at the cutting edge of all these things. Fighter pilots, in my experience, have no problem talking about their close calls, sh sharing that information with others so we can learn from it. We can learn from it as a group rather than waiting for somebody to have a tragedy and learning from that. I think the tactical units could set the tone for the entire agency on being open and out, uh, out coming on exactly what happened here. And if we have to, you know, make ourselves look bad, so be it. Have the guts to do that. And I just don't know how, how do we, how do we get teams to that point? How do you even start that conversation? Uh, it, it's, it's, I, you know, I tried to do what we call learning organizations. I'm sure it's, it's very similar to what you're talking about, where you know, I tried this as a watch commander. I said, hey, I want you guys to start self-reporting your mistakes. And I'm not talking about the ones that end you up over in internal affairs. 
I'm talking about those mistakes whereby, you know, hey, I didn't handcuff this guy right. And here's what happened. And here's why that happened. And I had a little bit of success with it, but for them, you know, and obviously as soon as you're gone, that, that whole thing dies and, and nothing happens with it because nobody really cares or <laughs> yep. uh, that was just Travis doing something stupid. I think it, it, it takes, you know, guys out there, especially the tactical guys, because most guys on tactical teams are all instructors and in something. It takes them to make these learning organizations where they are trying to call these lessons learned from mistakes that happen out there. I mean, I, you know, I try and do that at my agency where I'll watch body cam footage. I'll see things that are going on. I'll identify patterns and trends. And in my ability in my, now I can plug those right back into our quarterly training. And so that's, that's, that's the first time we've ever been able to do that at my agency. Um, yeah, because and, we have the right people in the right spots. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> that, and, and it was an, or, and it was an organic thing, right? Like, it's not like somebody made a plan and said, let's put these right people in these, the chess pieces in this order to make that happen. It just kind of happened through osmosis, but in reality, it should be a plan. And for those of you listening that are part of a team, most of us in the state of California and across the country are collateral teams, which means you're on a tactical team, but you have a full-time job doing something else. And my opinion is you have more power and influence over your organization than any other collateral team. You're, you're supposed to be the subject matter experts of your organization when it comes to solving tactical issues. And if you can be an example of this kind of culture, wherever your sphere of influence is, the tail can wag the dog. You can, you can make that cultural change in your organization successfully. Now, those, those teams can use your powers for good or powers for bad. If you have a bad culture, then your team's going to infect that organization in the wrong way. But if you can own your mistakes and develop this culture of after-action debriefing these patrol calls and looking at it as a team sport, not an individual sport, you're going to make your, your patrol teams better, your organization better, eventually tack teams in the state better, our profession better, but, but we all have to do it. And we all start by saying, this is what I could have done better. And this is how I'm going to fix it. So, an analogy of back in the 70s, if you were involved in an officer-involved shooting, uh, counseling was optional. Counseling was optional. You didn't have to go. Nobody went. Nobody went because that's a sign of weakness. You know, if I need to counsel, there must be something wrong with me. Well, one of my dearest friends, and he's still one of my dearest friends, uh, was involved five times. He pulled people over in Los Angeles who made a conscious decision. I'm going to kill me highway patrolman today. You know, I'm not talking about I thought he was going for a gun. It looked like he was. I'm talking about knockdown, drag out shootouts on the right shoulder of the interstate vicious vicious shootouts and we're still best friends so that would suggest to you that he's still alive you know this is the toughest guy in the california highway patrol ever he was one damn good cop and he went to counseling every time after the fact and i i asked him i said why do you do that he says for two reasons number one i think it benefits me and number two i want every cop to know it's okay to go to counseling that's not being weak. This is being smart. Now, fortunately, over the last 40 years, we have improved on the counseling where we're 
you know, those issues, uh, peer counseling, et cetera, et cetera, we're doing better. But the same analogy is true with what you guys are, are talking about. If we can get the tactical teams, probably the most respected people, and as you said, collateral, they have these other jobs. If they will open up, maybe that'll start a flood of information coming forward where we can change the tone, change the culture on talking about things that are uncomfortable to talk about. The goal here is to keep everybody going home and to make better decisions, right? We want to we want to be better thinkers. And uh, I know Travis and I and Chris and, and Cato, we spent a lot of time talking about how can I become a better thinker? You know, in, in your first two minutes talking with us, you referenced a couple of great books. And really the takeaways of those books are how I think, right? How I think about this isn't a black swan. It's a gray rhino. Yep. And, and the only real difference between the two is how I think about the problem and, and my how do, yeah, how are you arrogance. Yep. Yeah. Either personal arrogance or organizational arrogance. And history is riddled with the lessons of organizational arrogance on a national level, military level, law enforcement level, business level, everywhere. I just finished a great book. I matter of fact, I, the book is part of my University of Virginia lecture series uh, by General Stanley McChrystal. And the title of this book is Risk, chapter one. He's got a little quote there on the page. Not even, uh, he, couldn't hit, he couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. And then underneath was the last words of general such and such before he was shot. You know, just the arrogance, that can't happen here. But Crystal's got a great book in there. And he, boy, it's on my recommended reading list. Another one that I'm really excited about is Dan Heath's newest book, Upstream. And the lesson I took away from that is the macro always starts with the micro. So think this through. If we can get one tactical team to do this and share with a half a dozen others, you know, we can move this program from a local thing to a national thing. And I believe that MTOA and CTC, uh, Cato and groups like that are the ones who can spread these types of ideas. It's okay to say I made a mistake. It's okay to say I made a mistake. You know what's funny is everybody already knows. Everybody already knows we made a mistake. So the, the days of thinking nobody knows, those, those days are long gone. And, and that's why that's how we ended up where we're at. That's how we end up with this legislation in California, these transparency laws, is because we, we didn't say it. We didn't say, hey, and, and, and uh, going back to uh, proximate and root cause analysis, we, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't say let's not do SOPs, let's not do after action reports because they'll use them against us. We're, that's the, we're, we're misidentifying the problem. The problem is we need to write better after action reports and we need to write in there what we did to fix the problem. And we owe it to our brothers and sisters who come after us because we're paying for these lessons in blood and deaths of our people. And, and the community knows that, right? And the, and the community is telling us, hey, fix this. Well, we're not going to let you do it at all. It's, it's, it's incredible. We are our own worst enemy. You know, I, I gave a talk in Pennsylvania recently to their chiefs of police, and I quoted my 1980 handout material, the stuff I was teaching in 1980. So have you improved the quality of your background investigations since 1980? Do you have ongoing background investigations? Uh, who's doing the background investigations? You know, uh, performance evaluations, you know, this, there's nothing new here. It's the same stuff over and over and over again. It's just, uh, it, it, it's befuddling to me why we can't figure this out. 
history is the repository of all lessons for sure. No, could you could you just for for those of you who don't understand it, I did not understand proximate versus root cause analysis until Sid taught it to me, and he writes about it in Field Command. Can you just for those who might not understand approximate cause versus root cause, can you just talk about that real quick and why it's important and how do you identify a root cause? Because a root cause analysis takes a little more digging, uh, Absolutely. as we all know. It's it's not it's not the obvious one that just sticks out. So. If you could just discuss that a little bit for well, us. Well, you know, since I started my lecture circuit in 1980, I've been talking about tragedy Titanic. Wherever I go in the world, uh, everybody knows Titanic. You go to Dubai, they know Titanic. You go to Helsinki, they know Titanic. You go to Tokyo, they know Titanic. I'm talking to you from around this great country. You all know Titanic. 110 years ago, 110 years ago, 1,500 people ended up dead. By any definition, that's a tragedy. What caused it? You walk up to 100 Americans today and ask them what caused tragedy Titanic. Uh, it's the iceberg. 99 out of 100 will tell you it's the iceberg. I saw the movie 14 times. It was the iceberg. Why do we do that? Why is it that we take the event that instantly preceded the tragedy and that's what caused the tragedy? No, rarely is it a single event that generates a tragedy. Usually... It is a series of events that go on in, uninterrupted. Any one of which, if we did away with it, we'd avoid the tragedy. These series of events go uninterrupted. You'll have the triggering event, the proximate cause, followed by the tragedy, and then the lawyers get involved and they peel back the layers of the onion. They do Public Records Act, they use pretrial discovery, and they identify all these problems lying in wait, sometimes for years that people knew about or should have known about, and nobody did a darn thing about it. The associated causes, the related causes, the proximate causes. Let's go back and look for the root cause. What really caused tragedy Titanic? If you're really into this, that ship was doomed before it was built. That ship was doomed. I forget all the, all the issues that I studied over the past years, but they were in a hurry to build it. We got to get this thing built. Our competitors got these ships out and we're taking away our business. We got to get the thing built. Every time we hustle up engineering on any major project, do we end up making mistakes? Yep. But enough about the 787 and the lithium batteries, why they were catching on fire. I talked to people at Boeing. It wasn't right. We knew that we put it up there anyhow. We put it up there anyhow. You know, holy moly. We got to go back in time. What really caused these things? You know, how about the welds? How about the design? How about this? How about that? The Kobe Bryant thing I just talked about. They go back and look for what really caused these problems. Not the proximate cause, but what really caused it. And, you know, having done this for a long time, there's five proximate causes, excuse me, five root causes that I see in every law enforcement tragedy. Sometimes it's a lack of quality people. Sometimes it's a lack of quality policy. Sometimes it's a lack of good training. Sometimes it's supervisors not behaving like supervisors. And sometimes it's a lack of organizational discipline. And we are not addressing these problems lying in wait. You know, you, you invited me here. You know what just popped in my head? When I came on in 73, very few women cops. By 83, women cops were growing in numbers. Uh, and then what do you get? You get sexual harassment. You get all these inappropriate behaviors going on. So in 1985, I put together a class. I was on the lecture circuit, sexual harassment techniques for elimination, techniques for elimination, four-hour class. And between 85 and 95, I taught it one way. In 95, I had this brilliant idea. 
I've got a new way to teach my sex harassment class. I did it for two months and I got in so much trouble for doing it the new way. I had to go back and do it the old way. So I don't do it the new way anymore, but I'll tell you what I did for two months and man, did it get people angry. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, Gordon Graham here. I got you for four hours on sex harassment techniques for elimination. Let's get started. And I would reach into my briefcase and pull out a stack of three by five cards. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna hand these three by five cards out at random. Well, there was no randomness to it. I just gave it to the women in the row. And you can hear people talking, this is not random. He's just giving it to the women. I get back up front. Ladies, would you take a look around the room right now and write down the name of the biggest sexual predator in this room right now. And by the way, if you're gonna do this, you get your cash up front because they are not gonna pay you after the fact. Now, to be fair, I'd go around and pick up the cards. Most of the cards had nothing written on them. But when I did see a name, did I see that name repeated on other cards in that same stack? Yep, I'd hold them up to the chief. Hey, chief, what? Good news, sir. What? Not your name. I knew that. I, I knew that. Sir, I'll sell you these cards for $50,000. And you can see I'm thinking, well, we can take it out of asset seizure and forfeiture money. And I'd tear the cards up and throw them away. My guess is, Chief, you don't need to buy them. My guess is what? You already know. What was the last time a sex harassment lawsuit was filed against the police department where people sat around after the fact and said, ah, who would have ever thunk? Most of the time people were saying, that's been going on for years. Everybody knew and nobody did a darn thing about it. I got a four-hour block on vehicle operations. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Gordon Graham here. I got you for four hours on vehicle operations. In front of you, you see a set of handout material and a three-by-five card. Would you please take a look around the room right now and write down the name of the next cop who's going to stack up a patrol car? And everybody's laughing. And one kid's got this red face. <laughs> Everybody knows. Do the mechanics know which cop is going to stack up the car? Do the dispatchers know who's going to stack up the car? And somehow this is a mystery. These things are not sneaking up on us. They are not black swans. They're gray rhinos. Everybody knows, and we're not doing about it. And you know, in my long lectures, this is my, my pet phrase. Mediocrity has replaced accountability. If you're a sergeant and you take that cop on, you get paid X. If you ignore the cop, you get paid X. So why take the cop on? Because that's your job. You chose to promote. Nobody put a gun to your head and said, you've got to promote. You chose to promote. You've got to take people on on probation. You've got to address people who clearly think the rules do not apply to them. We know exactly who they are, and we just keep on ignoring them. Everything you've just said is really a version of mitigating different kinds of risks, right? And the last one was leadership and failing to be a leader, failing to be an actively engaged supervisor. And that's, you know, our first, not really our first level of mitigation, but a lower level of mitigation. But talk about, let's talk about your, your Swiss cheese model. Yeah. Your, your, uh, your Swiss cheese model of risk mitigation. James Reason, uh, Dr. James Reason, uh, one of the true gurus in the field of risk management. He's on my recommended rating list and he's a very, very smart guy. He's the guy who coined this Swiss cheese model. So you got all these pieces of cheese with the holes in them. Rarely do the holes line up. Every now and then the holes will all line up. And his whole theory was when the holes all get lined up, he says, that's when the tragedies occur. You know, just little simple things, you know, were taken out of the equation can prevent the tragedies. It, well, wow, we are lucky that gun misfired or that cop would be dead. Well, that's just luck. We cannot rely on luck. We have to rely on process. 
So identifying the holes of the Swiss cheese and making sure they are, there's no way that they could possibly line up. That's a big part of what their Dr. Reason talks about in his live lectures, because sooner or later, you know, these problems lying in wait, all the holes will get lined up. We're going to have the tragedy followed by the lawyers, followed by the news media. They peel back the layers of the onion and they identify all these problems lying in wait that everybody knew about and nobody did a darn thing about it. And to, and to apply that to tack teams, uh, I would even throw in there that Murphy gets a vote in this. Mr. And Murphy. Mr. Murphy <laughs> definitely up lines up those slices of cheese. Yep. Yeah, Mr. Murphy will make sure those cheese slices line up real good. Yep. And that's when your your adversary, your suspect, comes out in the one place that that would capitalize on all those little mistakes that were made and causes a blue-on-blue blue shooting or or causes these issues. And, and so that's another thing to consider, right? We, we induce what you were, you're talking about is we're inducing these friction ourselves before the event even takes place Yep. and throw in an adversary. And now they're, they're injecting their own chaos, but in reality, the majority in tactical situations, the majority of that chaos is self-induced friction. Well, from four years ago, five years ago now, we had a tragedy in the South China Sea. I use this in some of my live lectures for people. When they know I'm coming, I say, I want you to study this event. USS Fitzgerald. Read the final report of the USS Fitzgerald. You will think you are reading about some third world Navy with two boats. This is the United States Navy. A $1.8 billion guided missile cruiser ran into a ship in the South China Sea. And you read the final report and you're saying, there's no way that could happen in the American Navy. No way that could happen. What do you What do you mean? Oh, you mean a week prior, they missed another cargo ship by a matter of feet and it was never reported? It was never addressed, the close call that they had? Are you telling me that most of the electronics on the boat was not functioning and nobody knew how to fix it? You're telling me that the person in charge of the bridge would not talk to the person in charge of the combat information center because they hated each other's guts? You're telling me that the highest score anybody got on rules of the sea was 22%? This is the, our United States Navy, a $1.8 billion guided missile cruiser. Don't think this is limited to law enforcement. We got these problems lying in wait. And this accountability is just, it's, it's a foreign concept for a lot of people. Yep. Can I get into something else that's a pet peeve of mine? You know, you mentioned this earlier on about decision-making. So in many police academies, we teach our people how to do things. We don't teach them how to think. We don't teach them how to think. And throughout all my lectures, this is a thinking woman's job, a thinking man's job. And if you hire or put up with people who can't think, that's a problem lying in wait, a huge problem lying in wait. And we don't teach our people how to think. Well, Gordon, why should we? By your own admission, half an hour ago, you said that most of what we do, we do right. Yep, because most of what we do, we've done before. And past experience is an excellent teacher. You give me good people, and I believe you have them. You put them into a task they've done before, past experience. I got past experience. They'll do it right for you. That's why most things go right. What happens when we take good people and put them in a low-frequency event? Have we given them a systematic approach on how to think things through? You know, uh, you are, you've been around for a long time. Your boss has staff meetings. 
staff meetings. Well, I don't know whether on Tuesday morning or every two weeks on Tuesday morning. I have been to enough staff meetings around America, uh, law enforcement staff meetings. I've been to a number of them on the CHP. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Please, everybody take your seats, please. We have a lot to cover here in the staff meeting. Uh, let's get started. Item one on our agenda is uh, uh, item two, uh, item three, four, five, six, seven. What's the last item on every agenda for a staff meeting? All right, all right. Time for our roundtable discussion. Uh, Mary, how's everything going over in patrol? Uh, pretty good, Chief. Uh, Tom, how's everything going over in dispatch? A uh, pretty good, Chief. Uh, Fred, how's everything going over there in training? A uh, pretty good, Chief. Uh, Steve, what the hell went wrong in your unit? So within all the silos of that law enforcement agency, somebody at the lowest level made a mistake. It's in the news. The city council's upset about this. The board of supervisors is upset. The news media is covering this thing. The chief is on the hot spot with city council. I want the bottom line on this, Steve. I don't want a bunch of gobbledygook. I want the bottom line on this. What went wrong? Bottom line, chief. Bottom line. The involved employee made a bad decision. And I look around the table of these things, and here's all the other commanders sitting there. Bad decision. Bad decision. Excuse me, Chief. Uh, Gordon, you have a thought? Occasionally they pop up. Are we actually going to say that the cause of this tragedy was the employee made a bad decision? Well, I think he made a bad decision. The investigators think he made a bad decision. Internal Affairs thinks he made a bad decision. You think it could be something else? I think the bad decision is the proximate cause, but I think you might have a problem lying in wait. What could that be? Have you ever trained your personnel on how to make good decisions? Well, of course we have. No, we haven't. We teach our people how to do things we don't teach them how to think. CHP did not give me a decision-making process in 1973. No, they taught me how to do things. 75, teaching credential, I got no decision-making process there. 76, 77, graduate school, they taught me theories and principles of risk. Do you know where I got my decision-making process was in law school. In law school, they teach you a technique called IRAC, I-R-A-C. What's the issue? What's the rule? Apply the rule, reach a conclusion. And for four years in law school, Mr. Graham, what's the legal issue? Mr. Graham, what's the rule of law? Mr. Graham, would you apply the rule of law to the issue at hand? Mr. Graham, what is your logical conclusion based on the facts? Iraq, 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 Iraq. I used it when I took the bar exam. What's the issue? What's the rule? Apply the rule, reach a conclusion. I used it as a young attorney. What's the issue? What's the rule? Apply the rule, make a good decision. Simultaneously to becoming a new lawyer, I was a brand new sergeant for 10 years. Everything I did as a motorcycle cop, I'd done it before. Now I'm getting exposed to new things. I wonder if this IRAC will work for me. And it did, but it wasn't perfect. And I thought about it a lot, a lot of pieces of paper, drawing diagrams, but it took me a couple of years and I came up with the 10-step decision-making process. If anybody wants it, lexapol.com forward slash presentations, and you can download my 10-step decision-making process. Step one, what needs to be decided? And if it's a preservation of life issue, we skip to step eight and we preserve life because that's what our job is all about, preservation of life. Whether it's suspects' lives or witnesses' lives or victims' lives or cops' lives, we are into preservation of life. Step one, the first step of making a good decision, what's going on, what needs to be decided? 
Step two, do I have time to think? If the answer is yes, move on to step three. Do I have jurisdiction? If the answer is yes, move on to step four. Take the time to look up the policy. Take the time to look up the policy. For those of you who are Lexible clients, you carry the policy around on your iPhone, on your little smartphone. It's there, look it up, look it up. Make sure you're following the policy. Step five, past practice. How have we done it before? Step six, am I doing the right thing here? The ethics considerations. Step seven, uh, consequence analysis. What are the consequences if I do this, if I don't do it? Step eight, make the call. Step nine, document as necessary. And step 10, if you learn something new, share with as many people as you can. So there's my decision-making process, how to think things through. You know, with that focus on preservation of life, knowing your policies, making sure we're doing the right thing in everything we do. You covered all that stuff and thank you so much. And I really did want to get to the decision-making process because just forcing that and, and one of the things, uh, it's a major theme that we stole from Sid and, and Hillman even is just, we focus so much on the how. We're teaching so much how that we skipped how to learn how to think. It's procedure-based decision-making yeah. instead of principle-based decision-making. Yeah. So we learn we learn the procedure. We don't learn the principles behind the decision, and and that's what started me in in reaching out to Sid and Tim and learning uh, tax science and field command and Cato and is I I, I want to know how to think. I want to know why I do what I do. The derivation of cockpit resource management. You know, nobody dares. Yeah. You watch these, and I'm not bad mouthing anybody, but you take a look at these Asian airlines. They're just flying into things because nobody will say anything to the captain. That captain's in charge. I don't need anybody's advice, you know? I know captains who will deliberately make mistakes, you know, in the cockpit to make sure that the co-pilot knows it's okay to take me on and say, hey, you didn't do that. You know, that's, they deliberately do it. If they don't report it, that's a problem for them. But how long did that take? Because I, I know in the 70s, I remember the United flight that crashed outside of Portland while they were just circling around, just going through the book. I mean, Not was it a decade or so? subject matter expert, but I'm thinking it took 20 something years. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So if we start now in law enforcement in, in two decades, we'll be closer to where the airline industry is now. You know, there's that legislatively that, mandated that, before that. What's, what's that word? Uh, one plus one equals four uh, uh, exacerbates or uh, compounds. If we can get enough people thinking about this simultaneously, we can do it much quicker than 20 years. We can do it very, very quickly if we have the right people in the right places. Have, have I ever told you my theory on bow thrusters? No. My dad was a merchant marine in World War II. Uh, and I'm bragging when I tell you this. Um, let me see if I have this here. Ships of the United States Merchant Marine. That was in my dad's papers when uh, dad passed away. And I've got a lot of his personal items here. Uh, you know what the death rate was in the United States Marine Corps in World War II? One out of 48 United States Marines died in World War II. What nobody knows is one out of 25 merchant mariners died in World War II. That was the risky job in World War II was a merchant marine. The Japanese and the Germans were not stupid. They had submarines off our east and our west coast, and they were blowing up our convoys left and right. And my, my dad uh, did that job. Where were we going with this? What was, uh, what was the point that I was trying to make here? Is it take two decades for us to, to learn these oh, lessons yeah. and implement? So my, uh, my dad was telling me that in World War II, a destroyer running flank speed, destroyer running flank speed, 35, 40 miles an hour. 
how long did it take to change directions on that thing? You know, it took forever to change direction. It took forever to get that thing stopped. That once they were hauling ass, they were hauling ass and they, you know, it was very difficult. So they came up with this concept called a bow thruster to help dock these big ships. And you go down to any harbor now, rarely do you see tugboats docking ships anymore. They've got these bow thrusters that'll move the boat, boat from side to side in tight quarters, et cetera, et cetera. Well, somebody in the military said, you know what? These things might have been designed to help us dock better and get us in closer with that side. How about if we turn those nozzles forward, put them forward and shoot that water out? Would that help us slow down these massive, uh, massive ships? And those bow thrusters are very clever at changing the direction of a big ship. I view the five percenters in law enforcement as the bow thrusters. I view each one of you men here tonight as a bow thruster. You are in a position where you can put a little pressure here, a little pressure here, and change the direction of this big ship. If we have enough people in tactical units who I believe are highly respected around the country by their agencies, if we can get them to give advice to their agency on how to change direction in terms of decision-making, critical thinking skills, uh, coordination, excuse me, uh, cooperation with other agencies. If those people were the bow thrusters, we could change the direction of those ships. You know, again, digressing on this, the difference between Japanese corporations and U.S. corporations. Most of the CEOs on the U.S. side for decades came up the sales side. Most of the CEOs in Japan came up the engineering side. So if you took a look at cars from the 70s and 80s and 90s, so a salesman designed this bad boy, huh? I've got a, a big-ass Mercedes-Benz parked outside my, my building here, my big-ass Mercedes that I bought brand new in 1992. There is no uh, cup holders in my car. Every car back in 92 had cup holders. Mercedes-Benz fought that for 15 years. The engineers designed cars. Why would you want the cup holder? Why would you want a cup holder? Well, so you can drink. Your job is to drive, not drink. You know, your job is to drive. BMW started overtaking Mercedes-Benz sales because they had cup holders. So Mercedes-Benz had to yield to the salespeople and get cup holders. You know, it was the engineering side versus the sales side. You know, you have an ashtray. Yeah. Look at, look, I would like to do a study and I know I'm just rambling now. I would like to do a study of agencies run by SWAT personnel where SWAT cops moved up and took over an agency. This is my very wild ass guess on this. It's a whole different animal when you've got a tactical guy running things up top or a tactical woman running things up top. It's funny you mentioned that because just today we were having that discussion in the, the team leader class about uh, support. We were talking about perception of SWAT um, and support for the team. And it there were several examples. I think we went through eight or nine of the different agencies that are represented. And the change was when they had a prior SWAT member or even uh, a SWAT commander who wasn't a member who are now uh, in the chief or sheriff position. And uh, they look at things differently. And I think that was part of the basis for the strategic leadership program as well. Uh, I know you participated in the lectures for us that have uh, been involved in that, but it's taking some of those lessons that were learned, the decision-making processes that were taught and honed during SWAT operations and applying those to the bigger uh, organizational operations. Yep. The thing I try to stress to street cops is, and I, I don't know your world as well as you do, but my experience is, you know what SWAT's all about? Slow down, slow down. You know, 
street cops, you got to get it done now. You got to get it done now. I like people who say, okay, let's slow down and think, what do we have? What are our options? Let's think this through rather than just blindly running in and doing stupid stuff. Gordon, one, just one more question uh, I wanted to ask you. You talked about problems lying in wait. And what would your advice be for a tactical team member who identifies a problem that's lying in wait? How, how, do, they, how do they deal with that? Because I think, I think a lot of times we get team members who they know there's a problem, but they're afraid to speak up. And obviously that's a, that's a team issue. It's a cultural issue. And, you know, team leaders, team uh, commanders, they need to encourage their, their guys to speak up when they see something, especially, uh, you know, one of these problems lying in wait. What would your advice be for them? Uh, this Friday, I'll be flying up to Monterey for the Naval Postgraduate School. And frankly, it's my favorite class that I teach. It's the Emergence Program, E-M-E-R-G-E-N-C-E. And it's a bunch of young kids who've already demonstrated that they're five percenters and they want to change the world. And for four days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they are show, shown by a group of professionals how to get their ideas in, into paper into a workable form. I've got them on Friday morning. And on Friday morning, I've got them for three hours. Let me tell you exactly what's going to happen when you get back to work. Uh, yeah, that's nice, but that won't work here. We've never done anything like that. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, we have stifled any attempt to change things, any attempt to change things. You know, th this is just wrongheaded thinking. You know, and this is my own pet peeve. In 1975, I learned a better way to train people in high-risk occupations at University of Southern California. Holy moly, daily training focusing on core critical tasks. My gosh. And I wrote a memo to the California Highway Patrol. I got two years on the job. I'm a union rep and I wrote a memo and I get called into my captain's office. It was a terrible, terrible day. Exactly who do you think you are? Are you suggesting the California Highway Patrol does not know how to train its personnel? So I'm telling you there's a better way. You know something, Graham? The California Highway Patrol has somehow existed without your advice since 1929. And I have an idea that we will exist without your advice for the next 100 years. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know, Mike, I was devastated, just absolutely devastated, 1975. 1985, I started that training program with my squad of cops. And by 1995, it had spread throughout the state of California. Organically, it just spread. Daily training focusing on core critical tasks. Bruce Bryant gave me an idea 35 years ago. You make a mistake, somebody's got the put out the spike strip and hit the wrong car. Why don't we write them a check that night? Quick settlements. What? What? They haven't even filed a claim yet. Why are we encouraging them? Take care of it before the lawyers get involved. Bruce got laughed at. I got laughed at. That is now de rigueur in many agencies. You know, why aren't we carrying AEDs? If people in our community are dying from heart attacks, why do we have to wait for some 80,000 pound fire truck to take a week to get there? Why don't we have them in our trunk? No, we don't do that. More and more agencies. Yes, we are. Narcan. Can you imagine the people who have the idea? You know what? Why don't we carry Narcan around with us to help people who overdose? What? What? Helping people overdose, that's their own damn fault. And now with more and more agencies, people are, you know, there are better ways to do things out there. And if some woman or man comes up to an executive and says, I've got an idea, we need to sit down, clear our desk and listen to what they have to say. 
you know, even if it's not the right thing to do or there's something flawed with it, encourage these people to come forward with their ideas. We are throwing away all this knowledge simply because we've never done anything like that. We've never done anything like that. Just crazy. How do we do background investigations? You know, when I talk about shadow background investigations, how about every 10th background investigation, you hire a private investigator to do the same background investigation? What? We, got, we have our own people doing the investigation. Your own people who are under a lot of pressure to get numbers in. So maybe they're ignoring some things because they want the numbers because their boss is on them. We need six more by Friday. We need six more by Friday. You hire that PI, if everybody's playing fair, they're going to come up with the same findings on this person, the same facts where you can make your decision. Well, we'll never do anything like that. More and more agencies are doing things like that. You know, so we, we've got to change. Everybody's got ideas. Let's take them, identify them, pick the best ones and share them on a national level and improve the quality of our profession. And I know that's a bunch of miscellaneous ramblings, but young kids who come forward, who get shot down, that's the last you'll ever hear from them. Yeah, we'll stifle that creativity. Yep. And and we can't afford to do that. And, you know, we don't know everything and we need, especially the higher rank you go, the more removed you are from day-to-day -day operations and the more subject you are to group think. So you need those people to inject themselves into your space and go, Hey, this is what it looks like from my point of view. And also why we oh, hire and put my, uh, my university or Virginia lectures where the master of public safety program they have down there. I I've got a, an elective program there called practical applications for risk management and public safety operations. And the final project is a risk assessment tool for your agency where you are building a risk assessment tool for your agency based on the 10 families of risks, the external risks, the legal and regulatory risks, strategic risks, organizational risks, operational risks, information risks, technology risks, HR risks, financial and reputational risks, and political risks. And the final project, with respect to our agency in each of these 10 families of risks, what are the greatest risks we face? Do we have sufficient control measures in place to address the risks? Are the control measures properly designed, kept up to date, and fully implemented? So now they come up with problems. They have to find solutions. So they have to build policies. Here's my rule on policy development. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. You want to build bulletproof policies? Give me five cops who actually have to follow the policy and put them in the derivation process. Give me four supervisors, three managers, two executives, one risk manager, and zero lawyers. Keep the lawyers out of the derivation process. They get paid by the hour. It'll take forever to get anything done. Let them review your final product and make any changes that are necessary. You know what? When you're trying to sell a policy to a bunch of cops, if they had involvement in the development of the policy, does that enhance your ability to sell the policy to them? Give me four supervisors who actually have to enforce the policies. You know supervisors, you have policies, that's stupid. But as a supervisor, I have to enforce it. You know, get their input. Give me three managers, two executives who will take a look at the big picture on the political issues, et cetera, et cetera. And one, one risk manager and keep the lawyers out of the derivation process. You know, and how to build policies. If you get the input from the people who actually do things, you're gonna get a much better written policy. What do I know about? I'm, I'm 15 years retired. I, but I talked to everybody and you talk to people. Yeah, I, I was uh, 33 years of the job. Well, what have you been doing for the last 22? Well, I, I've been a chief of police. You don't have a clue what's going on on the street. 
You do not have a clue. Get the women and men who actually do the job. They understand these things. So uh, as we wrap up here, uh, thank you again for your time. You're a pro. So normally I try to have some takeaways. You gave tons of tangible examples, tons of tangible you know, uh, things that you can do right now in your shop to improve the culture, to improve your ability to manage risks and how you can influence our profession. And you mentioned a couple of, of uh, your websites. We'll put those links in there, like your reading list, which uh, I always enjoy. Any other advice you have to folks listening on where they can go to learn more about how they can better mitigate the risk for their teams, for their shops, for their agents? Absolutely. Uh, I, I would encourage uh, two years ago, three years ago, Lexapol bought policeone.com and firerescueone.com. It was part of a bigger plan to get that national voice. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, pitch my own organization, but policeone.com five years ago, eh, it wasn't anything I really wanted to read. We got a new editor there, very sharp woman, Nancy Perry, and she really cares about our profession. Uh, she is uh, focusing on my knowledge of all knowledge of one project, sharing institutional knowledge. I, I would like it if people would regularly, maybe on a weekly basis, take a look at some of the top stories on policeone.com. There's a lot of stuff on there that I think they would find valuable. On the Lexipol website, if you drill down on the webinars, there are some brilliant webinars out there. They're all for free. There's some brilliant webinars, some brilliant podcasts, out there available. And if you have ideas on how to make things better, you know, get to me. And I've got the ability to get it to people. I don't know everything, but I know everybody. In getting things where we can get people to think about this in a group and maybe change our entire profession. But it, to, to wrap this up, I, I would like to wrap it up the way I wrap up all of my, my live lectures. Regardless of what type of group I'm talking to, regardless of the ranks of the group, there's three basic rules of risk management. Basic rule number one, Dr. Arkin DeZeller. Uh, never met the guy, but I read everything he wrote when I was in graduate school. My favorite Zeller quote, the errors you're going to make can be predicted from the errors already made. What does this mean? There's no new ways to get in trouble. Refineries have figured out no new ways to blow up. Ships have figured out no new ways to sink. Airplanes have figured out no new ways to crash. Firefighters have figured out no new ways to die. Cops have figured out no new ways to screw things up. The errors you're going to make can be predicted from the errors already made. Basic risk management rule number two, there's always a better way to stay out of trouble. While there's no new ways to get in trouble, there's always a better way to stay out of trouble. That quote came from Chater Mason, one of my favorite professors at USC, Professor Chater Mason. One day I accused him of being the smartest person who ever lived. And he said, Gordon, I'm not. If not you, who? Gordon, the smartest person is the woman, the man, who figures out the 15th way to hold two pieces of paper together. Professor Mason, I'm not getting this. Gordon, here's two pieces of paper. How would you hold them together? With my fingers. It's easy. Can you think of a second way? Stapler. Third way? This is easy. Paperclip. Fourth way? Yeah, I'll fold the corners back and I'll tear them. Fifth way? Uh, gummy sticky stuff. Good for you, Gordon. Sixth way? Uh, heat transfer, molecular bonding. Good for you, Gordon. Seventh way. I'm running out of ideas, Professor. He said, you came up with four. Most, of, most people come up with four. You came up with six. I figured out nine, Gordon. Smart people have figured out number 14, and they're looking for 50. Professor Mason, I'm still not getting this. 
Gordon, I don't know where your career is going to take you, but remember, whatever you choose to do, there is always a better way. Continuous improvement, not change for change's sake, but we got to get better and better and better at what we do. Our public deserves better than minimum standards. Our personnel deserve better than minimum standards. Our profession deserves better than minimum standards. Anything you can quantify, anything you can measure, anything you can establish a metric for, we got to be constantly in pursuit of the next best way. And the third basic rule, I built a company out of these three words, predictable is preventable. Identifiable risks are manageable risks, very few black swans, lots of gray rhinos. If we know our past, we can prevent problems in the future. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, Please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.